0: This is New Books in Science Fiction, that special corner of the New Books Network where you never know what you'll find. Could be spaceships, or wild nanotech, or dystopias, friendly aliens, maybe unfriendly dictators, maybe even detectives who have their forensic technology built right into their heads. And yes, that's right, that last little bit there is what we're going to talk about on today's episode the Crime Lab on My Mind edition. I'm delighted to be conversing today with K.R. Richardson about Blood Orbit, her crime novel, which is set on a planet divided by racial strife and corporate greed. K.R. Richardson is a writer and editor of science fiction, crime, mystery, and fantasy, and lots of fans know her as Kat Richardson, the author of the best-selling Greywalker Paranormal Detective Novels and she's with me now from her home in Washington State. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: Blood Orbit opens with a horrible crime. Sixteen people are found murdered in an after-hours club. Can you set up the scene for our listeners?
1: Uh, Yeah, there's an ethnic ghetto in the major city of the planet, and there's an after-hours club for local business owners of that particular ethnicity. And our point of view hero, um, Eric Matheson, he's a rookie cop. And in a routine nightly patrol, he and his partner come across this crime because it's on their beat. And it is initially taken to be strictly, you know, group against group ethnic crime. And it turns into a lot of other really horrible stuff. And it is based on an actual Crime that occurred in Seattle in the 1980s. And so a lot of the reactions of the cops, both in the immediate um, reaction to seeing the scene for the first time and to the investigation, were based on reportage of the crime that actually inspired this.
0: Very interesting. I want to get back to hearing a little bit more about the crime on which this incident in blood orbit is based. But before I do that, why don't we talk a little bit about the other investigator assigned to this case? You mentioned Eric Matheson, the rookie cop. He's also working with Inspector J.P. Dalal. I don't know if I said his name the way you might say it.
1: (laughs) No one says anything the way I might say it.
0: So how would you say his name? (laughs)
1: Oh, well, everybody calls him Dechal, but he pronounces it Dechal.
0: Okay, I'm going to try that.
1: But I don't expect anyone to get the pronunciation correct.
0: So for Inspector Dechal, he just has had this incredibly major surgery. It's been about two weeks since the surgery, which is basically to have a forensics lab implanted in his head. I was hoping you could describe for listeners what that equipment looks like and explain a little bit about what it does for him, and also why on earth he allowed a doctor to do this to him, especially when it's highly experimental and the previous patients she's attempted this on have died.
1: Well, it's uh, very controversial, even within the structure of the story. People occasionally refer to it, although they almost never mention the previous tries that went wrong. They aren't revealed to the, the public. It's something that's known by the doctor, by Dachal, by his supervisor and a couple of other people, and everyone else is kind of kept mum about it, or they don't know about it. But it was his only chance to get ahead, because Dachal represents the intersection of two extremely oppressed minorities who are also at odds. So he is both you know, sort of the Romeo and Julia child, as well as being both groups' absolute nightmare, that they would intermarry and produce a child who fits in neither world. And since he doesn't fit in any place, this is the only way to get ahead, is to take a massive gamble with his life, which he does, for a lot of reasons which come out later in the book and are obviously not revealed early on. You have to build into them by seeing him in action and wondering why he does the things he does, including why he chooses to do this thing, which is ridiculously dangerous. Uh, Building up the whole technical end of the forensic lab in his head, a lot of it is actually um, sampling and then on-the-fly analysis, which gets routed through his interface to big great big databases so he doesn't have the entire database what he has is extremely fast access to databases and this becomes significant in other parts of the book where he has no database access because he has no network access and whenever he doesn't have network access he basically has to fake it At one point in the book, he does say a lot of this is due to his ability to lie and his knowledge of what he is doing that he has not been allowed to exercise in the past because of his position. Now, as an inspector, which is a senior investigating position, he has a lot of authority and a lot of flexibility, and so he is able to go ahead with these investigations at a level he would previously have been barred from.
0: And they basically advanced him to the level of inspector in exchange for being willing to submit to this incredible intrusion and interface being put in in his head.
1: Yes. Also, having this ability makes him the natural position of leadership in any given investigation to which he would be assigned. So it made sense to them uh, administratively. That whoever could undertake this successfully would have to have a certain amount of leadership authority. So, even if he had not been the person he is in terms of ethnicity and social position, even if he had been, you know, a member of the mainstream ethnic community, non ethnic community, he would still have received that advancement regardless because you have to be in charge once you have that ability
0: I find it fascinating that people are really repulsed when they first see him you're always describing people's reactions to him and usually when there are cyborgs I feel like that's something that's not which he essentially is I think it's probably I don't know if it's fair to call him a cyborg I mean he's a mix of mechanical and human and usually people take it for granted in in stories but in your story It's we're witnessing the first time people are seeing someone with this kind of equipment and their initial reaction, which makes so much sense to me.
1: Yeah, it was kind of a a fun thing to do. I know it sounds strange that a lot of these things that are disgusting and repulsive and very upsetting and off-putting are fun. But as a writer, one, one of the most enjoyable parts of your job is knowing that you are setting up a situation that causes a little discomfort for your readers, because that often forces them to think about why they are uncomfortable. So that was that was my evil uh, writer moment of God, this is fun, but. Yes, I I did include that deliberately. Not only is he kind of an odd-looking person to begin with, he's he's not very tall, he's uh, kind of weedy, kind of thin. Um, his face is an odd color. He has this blazing red hair. Um, he's He's a very distinctive-looking person to begin with. And then this massive surgery that has partially reshaped his head, removed one eye and replaced it with this cybernetic mechanical prosthesis which interfaces with all this stuff in his head as as well as a bunch of equipment that's been implanted in his chest that I never went into great detail with because it wasn't terribly important to know you know those tiny little minutiae but yeah it does look really disturbing also the fact that because they kind of did it on a shoestring financially the, the surgery itself was done as cheaply as possible they have to use um skin patches that don't necessarily match his skin tone. So in addition to all the rest of this, he's literally patchworked on his face. So I think anyone would be a little disturbed if they saw that.
0: And on top of that, it's fresh surgery. So he's usually oozing something or there's like problems with it too, which just I think, adds to the effect of the perhaps unnaturalness of it.
1: Yeah, I got a comment back from I think it was uh Nisi Shaw, if I remember correctly, said that she was particularly struck by the fact that this is uncomfortable, that he is not well, that he's operating in a a physical condition that is considerably less than optimal, simply because that is an aspect of this sort of highly intrusive body change that is often not dealt with in science fiction. Uh, We kind of assume that everything will be fine. But having been in a major surgery uh, while I was doing revisions on this book, I wrote a lot of my experience in being in the hospital, coming out of the hospital, trying to adjust to how things had changed and how long it took to start to feel physically competent again and uh, put that into his experience Because I think it is something that people who've never been through a major surgery are unaware of how long you continue to be less than normal.
0: So I'm curious to hear about the true crime incident that inspired you, and maybe we can also talk about the context that you've placed this in on this planet, which is a planet called Gaddis which is named after the Gaddis Corporation which owns the planet. And one of the complicating factors I think for the investigators is that they are actually employees of the company which puts them in a situation I think maybe in different contexts we're familiar with, you know, maybe a police officer feels political pressure from the commissioner or the mayor to solve a crime here, the pressure is coming from the corporation that employs them.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, the inspiring case was the uh, the Wami Massacre, which happened in February of 1983 in what we call the International District here in Seattle. It was not quite as many people, but even uh, as late as a few years ago, there's still an impact in the community from the fact that... Um, initially 12 and then 13 people, because one of them died later, were killed in a little club in the Chinatown district. And it was uh, fairly horrible. In fact, it was very much like I described it, um, except I I actually toned it down a little bit. The descriptions from the, the police and the reporters at the time were so gruesome that they made strong men ill, Quite literally, a number of the police officers had to excuse themselves from the active investigation, take some time off, come back. Some of them went out into the alley and were physically ill because they were familiar with the area and to suddenly see people that they knew killed violently in a context that they thought of as being social and pleasant and here it was literally blood spattered and horrifying. So there's a a horrible shift in your perception and you're kind of assaulted. So that was what they were experiencing and I thought at the time when I ran across this this case while doing research for one of the Greywalker novels, I thought there were some interesting aspects to the assumptions that were made by the police at the time because of the culture that pertained in Seattle in the 70s through the late 80s. There was still a lot of police corruption. There was still a lot of bigotry and social assumptions about those people over there. There had been some history of violence between the Chinese community and the Korean community that was literally next door to them. And their initial assumption was that it was a matter of a Korean uh, gang attacking a Chinese business with the intent of robbing them and creating havoc. And so they started from that assumption, and it took a little while for them to change their thinking so that they could see what was really significant and then solve the crime. So with that background, I thought, you know, if a couple of things had been done differently, the perpetrators might have gotten away with this crime because of this social idea that the predominantly white police force had in investigating it. And so I took that idea of you could have this could have been a perfect crime because of this social concept and then said, and how would you be able to solve this now perfect crime? Who would you need to solve that crime? And that was where the whole story started was having perfected the problem, how do you then break it back down. And that's where Dilal came from, was that you had to have someone who understood both of the cultures who were being um, both victimized and accused of the crime. And the only way to do that was with someone who stood right in between both of them. So that was the background for Dilal. And then I had to push him up the ladder and give him the ability to work very independently, which he would not have been able to have in the real historical context. And the more I looked at it, the more I realized I would have to do this in science fiction because I couldn't do it in the real world. And I made a world and went on from there just so that I could tell this story and create this character.
0: Well, this really touches on your your world building because you've created a world where there are, in fact... Three cultures, largely in conflict. And now I see that you've made the parallels very clear to this incident from 1983 in Seattle. In particular, on Gaddis, there are the Gadians, who are the ruling class. And then there are, and again, I'll probably pronounce it, I'll pronounce it my own idiosyncratic Midwestern New York way. <laughs> but the—that's That's all right. The, the dry Lean and the Oba so the drylean and the oba being the two ethnicities that are the downtrodden ethnicities the oppressed ethnicities of this planet and dilal is has a one parent who was oba and one parent who was Dryleen. but you've had to create a whole culture which is fascinating because that culture makes it difficult for eric Matheson, who comes from none of those groups and actually comes from off planet and another world, for him to penetrate these cultures and conduct his investigation.
1: Well, Matheson was uh, to a certain degree my my Watson in that he isn't actually as important as Dural in revealing and investigating he is, to a large degree, the reader's advocate for all of those difficult questions about who are these people and what are they doing and what is the background of this problem. And he's looking at it from the point of view that you or I would have had looking at something like the Wami massacre, making assumptions that are actually incorrect and lead us to a, uh, in ineffective result. So that's where where Eric came from. And he's also kind of, you know, privileged and uh, a little bit naive and very much one of those, you know, kind of college students who wants to go out and change the whole world and doesn't really realize how hard that's going to be. So he had a very important purpose as well to kind of help us to look at these people in a way that a lot of us who aren't particularly mixed um, racially don't normally see. Uh, 'cause I'm I'm so white, I glow in the dark, although there there is some interesting stuff in the background. So when I started working with all of these characters and all of these situations, I wanted to broaden it a little and make the experience of the the underclass ethnic groups a little bit more universal. So rather than making them definitely the groups that were involved in the historical case, I wanted to make them into their own cultures that represented certain problems that we have seen throughout the history of um, colonization, colonialism, and general social history where we've seen ethnic groups being oppressed or even wiped out by a ruling class or an outside group coming into an area. So I took those ideas and I I tried to universalize those racial groups rather than working with one specific racial group. So the Drechlin and the Oba represent kind of amalgams of groups who have been oppressed and responded in different ways throughout the world and throughout history.
0: You make an interesting point in a blog post you wrote on Chuck Wendig's site. Oh, good old Chuck. You made me think of something I'd never thought of before, which is that world building for a reader being introduced to a new world is a bit like a detective investigating a situation, a crime, or an incident in essence there's kind of a parallel going on. You're you're as the writer of a mystery, you're revealing clues and as an inventor of a world, you are world building and revealing clues about how it works. And so you make this interesting point, uh you you write pacing and you mean the mystery novel pacing. Pacing and world building can work against each other. So I wondered if you could explain what you meant by that.
1: Yeah. Um there were a lot of edits in varying versions of the of the manuscript some of which had a lot more world building were very world heavy and others where there was very little and had to strike a balance between those world building does have a tendency to be given forth in great chunks because it's it's easy to say here is my invention let me show you it and that can really slow you down and it is kind of a a problem especially in an older style of science fiction where the world becomes the character instead of the story being propelled by characters who are embedded in it and although the world is important to this story and I do have to reveal a lot of it because there was a tremendous amount of world building I didn't want that to slow the story down too much and there was a bit of a a juggling act and there are places where it could have been done better but that's always the case every writer you'll ever meet will say oh it could have been better could have done one more draft <laughs> or two or three or four because we all feel that way that it could have been better so trying to keep the pace up and trying to keep people engaged especially modern readers who have a little less tolerance for the slow burn on a printed page, although they will often put up with it in, say, a television series. They don't have as much tolerance for it in print as they once did. And so I did a lot of juggling. Sometimes I think it worked. Other times I think it didn't work as well as I would like. We also have a tendency with modern written fiction, to want it to read very fast and very clipped and very much like a television show or a movie. But we cannot always simply show you something the way they can with TV and film. So as a writer, the difficulty becomes how to show you what is going on and the context and the world building that would be done visually in a second if it was television, and we need to do it with words in a way that is as unobtrusive as possible and keeps the reader immersed in that world keeps that world believable and allows the reader to continue suspending their disbelief so that they can run along with the story and that was that was very difficult and i think it's probably something a lot of hybridized writers people who are writing in that crack in between world-building and plot-driven narrative find to be pretty difficult.
0: I wanted to ask you about something related, I guess it's to the culture, it's how Gaddis Corporation works. And a very telling detail, I thought, was that they don't call their law enforcement force the people who make up the force, they don't call them officers. They call them office, which uses is spelled really like the English word office, but it's a C with a little hook at the bottom, the little cedilla. So I wondered why they chose and why you chose on their behalf to have them use a different word. And the same for the word for a detective is, and I'm not sure how to say it, but detive, perhaps?
1: That's correct. Yeah, there was a... I was looking at it, and I said, officer implies that you have an official status within the structure. As an officer of the law, or a peace officer, as we think of most uh, law enforcement officers these days, actually don't work for the police, they work for the community. So it's a very different relationship. So to have them called officer would have flown in the face of the reality of a corporation who runs the planet Gattis corporation effectively has a lease on the planet for development purposes and there's there are things that are mentioned in the course of the book about how their lease is coming to an end and will be reviewed and everything that they have done poorly will go against them and of course then they may lose control of the planet So that is the background for why they are not police officers. But in order to make it sound official, they come up with a word that sounds close enough that most people will fudge it. And we certainly see that in a lot of modern communications where we will use a word that it sounds a lot like or looks a lot like another word in order to imply that that word is what we actually mean and then associate ourselves with that so that is what the gaddis corporation is doing by calling people office and detive also the construction the structure of the words where there's an obvious syllable missing is based on a linguistic pattern that a lot of languages fall into over time of truncating and shortening words It's the same thing that causes us to use contractions and say, you've done X, or I'm feeling this way, instead of saying, you have done such and such, I am feeling, because it's faster and more casual, and we all do that in almost all languages, do truncate or compact words over time, and they get shorter and shorter.
0: Let me ask you about your decision to switch from fantasy, like the detective series you wrote as Cat Richardson, to a science fiction setting, uh, a police procedural set on a far-flung planet. And you've also changed your name for this, or you've adopted a pseudonym, uh, and I've seen you say that you did it because you knew it was a little bit risky to make the change. So could you... Talk about your decision here.
1: Oh, certainly. Uh, there were several reasons for it. It's a kind of a long chain to get there. But the Greywalker series, which did fairly well, was starting to come to the end of its natural cycle. It was urban fantasy. Urban fantasy was uh, kind of starting to wind down. It's still doing well, but it's contracted a little. And I could see the writing on that wall and I thought, okay, we're going to move into a different field. But I wasn't sure which of several projects I had proposed was going to go ahead. When the science fiction project was the one that got the go-ahead, we started discussing, my agent and I, whether we wanted to continue with the Cat Richardson pseudonym or change the pseudonym a little. On the one hand, there was already an established readership for the Grey Walker novels and for the short stories that I had done under Cat Richardson. And there wasn't any audience for another name. But we felt that since the tone was so much darker and the direction was considerably different, and it was definitely not remotely urban fantasy, that we needed to signal readers that this was something quite different. So a lot of conferences later, we came up with K.R. Richardson because it would be shelved right next to Grey Walker. And we we hoped that that would work out. It hasn't worked out as well as we had planned. Um, You'll also notice that all of the biographical information and everything that is official about K.R. Richardson is very gender neutral because there is a perception that women writing urban fantasy actually write paranormal romance, and it was a perception that I have been fighting since the very first book, because the Greywalker novels are not particularly romantic. They're very much detective noir in urban fantasy clothes. I've always been kind of a detective writer, and fighting that fight every book for nine books was really disheartening so we felt that a gender neutral pseudonym would serve this story better it was uh it was a gamble and unfortunately i i have to say it hasn't paid off particularly well in that um blood orbit has not sold very well as of this recording or at least the last statement i saw said that it's flagging pretty poorly
0: have you been able to reach out to your readers of the Greywalker series, or do you feel like this book is actually targeted towards a slightly different audience?
1: There is a slightly different audience for this book. There is a strong overlap, but it's not identical. We were hoping, when I say we, I mean, you know, my, me and my agent and the publisher, obviously. We were hoping that we would get a little bit more adoption from male audience, because the Greywalker novel's, were about 70% female audience. And we were hoping to get a little bit more like 50-50 on this one. I don't know what the demographics actually look like. But we also hoped that we would get people who were a little more comfortable with a darker tone, with a male protagonist, and with slightly more graphic content. The, The Grey Walker novels... Although they're very creepy, and here and there, they do get a little unpleasant. For the most part, they're not particularly graphic. I generally don't leave body parts spread all over the place in a Greywalker novel. People don't swear as much as they do in Blood Orbit. And there's very little sex.
0: (laughs) Well, I was going to ask, which is more true to the real cat K.R. Richardson, and then you mentioned sex, and I thought, oh, maybe I, I shouldn't <laughs> ask that question now. But up to, no, the, that's all right. up to the point of cursing and sort of the darkness and the interest in the kind of darker, seemier side, where are you in these books? What things have you drawn on from your own life story? And I don't mean murder, but for instance, I, I've seen in your bio that you know, marksmanship plays a role in blood orbit. And there's something in your bio that says that you enjoy target practice as one of your hobbies. So it made me wonder what else uh, about your life is, is in here?
1: Oh, there's all kinds of pieces of my life in in every book. And that's probably true for every writer. You're always pulling a little bit out of yourself. And that that's necessary. When you're going to humanize characters, you have to at least Look at your own emotional contexts and responses. Look at the people you know. Look at the situations you've been in. When people say, write what you know, they don't necessarily mean write about a life identical with yours. They mean write about what is emotionally true, write about what is socially true, write about what is factually true, these things that you know or have experienced or can extrapolate because we know that people respond in certain ways under certain circumstances if they are X type of person. So if you know those people or are that kind of person, you will write about that from a core of very personal knowledge, even if your character is not like you. So yeah, there are parts of both series that are built from me. I grew up in a, a theater family. My father was a uh, singing waiter to put himself through college, and we did a lot of musical comedy when I was a kid. So Harper Blaine being a former dancer in the Greywalker novels, that came from what I knew growing up, growing up as a kid who was involved with, um, with community theater. And as I got a little older, I became interested in uh, target sports, in shooting sports, and I'm still involved with those as politically hot potato as that may be. And so when I was talking about police officers, all police officers everywhere are required to go through a certain amount of firearms training and to understand the public safety aspects of that, as well as the social and political ramifications of using a firearm in public. And so I took what I knew from being in that world, from knowing people who are more deeply immersed in that world, And put that in with my cops in blood orbit. It's kind of an interesting phenomenon that writers always pull stuff from themselves and their own experience. But we also go out and do research. And my previous professional background was as a journalist. I have a degree in magazine editing of all the rarefied and ridiculous things. And so the habit of research of going out and getting information, and then integrating it into a complete story not only serves me as a writer, but it serves me when I'm writing about the detective process, because it is effectively the same thing. You go out, you ask questions, you do research, and you solve the crime, as opposed to, you know, writing an article about whatever has happened. But it's still a very similar process. So yeah, all of those things do come out of me to some degree, and Then there's other things that are completely made up because, as the author Lawrence Block once said, um, writing, it's all about telling lies for fun and profit.
0: Well, and on that note, I think we could wrap things up. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really been a pleasure talking to you.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's been lots of fun.
0: I've been talking with K.R. Richardson, author of Blood Orbit, which came out from Pyre this past May. Please subscribe to New Books and Science Fiction to hear interviews of your favorite science fiction authors. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The editor-in-chief of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and the editor is Leanne Wilson. Please consider leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. Thanks so much for listening.